Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Robert Mugabe was forced from power in Zimbabwe late last year. His former colleagues that took over hope new elections will clean up relations with the West. I'll talk with the author of Power Politics in Zimbabwe. And on Global Notes, our look at international music, we'll hear about the latest program from the North Shore Choral Society, Music for Social Change. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Zimbabwe's new leader, Emerson Menangagwa, says that democracy will be strengthened and respected following the resignation of Robert Mugabe. But it's hard to look around in Africa or many other places and see democracy and accountability on the upswing. With me is Michael Bratton. He is a distinguished professor of political science and African studies at Michigan State University and the author of Power Politics in Zimbabwe. Great to meet you. Thank you. And uh, Richard Joseph is here as well. He's professor of political science and African studies at Northwestern University. And it's great to see you, Richard. You've been bringing uh, Michael around, and you're just fresh off an event from the Council on Global Affairs. Thanks for dropping in. Glad to do. Uh, You know, I noticed that Morgan Changarai, the opposition leader in Zimbabwe, who won the elections there in 2008 and never uh, achieved taking power, Uh, was buried in Zimbabwe yesterday, and among the people who went to his funeral was Relia Odinga, the Kenyan leader who was uh, felt like he had a fraudulent election or two in Kenya. Um, Democracy doesn't seem to be winning out there, and and we could pick a place on the globe and, and, you know, almost all of them have democracy problems. Um, but specifically, Africa seems to be having a lot of accountability, a lot of democracy issues right now. How do you rack that up, Richard? Well, I think that's spot on. Um, I don't think we, um, we're having a lot of victories right now, but we're certainly having a lot of struggle right now. Um, you know, when I look at some of the supposedly pivotal countries, uh, the Congo, the DCR, uh, Kabila has just found a way not to even um, have elections, right? Um, the Kenyan elections, you mentioned those. Those have, you know, really um, ended up after a lot of time and money was spent. It's a very chaotic situation there. Um, Zimbabwe, um, we, the past of Zimbabwe, we don't have reason to be hopeful, about fraudulent elections, um, as we said this morning to Chicago Council, not just electoral violence, you know, we have actually had terror. Um, Morgan Swangarai was essentially driven out from going to a second round after he, you know, palpably won the first one. So uh, it means that, um, in fact, we have to engage more. <laughs> And that's why we're so glad to bring Michael Bratton. We're having some meetings at Northwestern. This is a time when we have to really engage more because so much seems to be at risk at present. Um, Michael, when we look at um, Zimbabwe, there's a lot of people, you know, I was reading a Financial Times editorial the other day that said, well, we should give Manangagwa a chance. 
and see what we get. And maybe, you know, we, he get, if he gives us pretty good elections, we lift some sanctions, we start, um, you know, would another situation like Rwanda be so bad if we had somebody who was governing decently and brought stability? Um, is, an, is another Kagame in Zimbabwe the worst thing in the world? Uh, how do you feel about the, the kind of compromise that people seem to be willing to make on this? Well, I think that is the right comparison to make. Um, you know, if if Munangagwa um, is a reformer, he's a reformer more on the economic front than on the political front. Uh, I think he is reaching out to the West as well as reaching out to China uh, to try and put an end to uh, Zimbabwe's dramatic downward economic spiral. Um, whether he's uh, willing also to follow up on his promise to hold free and fair elections, I think is an entirely different question. What we have in Zimbabwe, uh, excuse me, in Africa these days um, is the coexistence of authoritarianism with elections. Often we tend to equate elections with democracy, but in fact, uh, elections can coexist with authoritarian rule and they can be used to uh, strengthen the legitimacy of uh, a ruling elite that's already in power. That's what's been done in Zimbabwe for the last uh, 40 years and so far the signs are that's what will continue in the future. A lot of people may not be familiar with Emerson Mnangagwa. Um, could you tell us a little about him? Because he's got a very interesting history as the chief of intelligence in, in Zimbabwe. Uh, he does. Um, his history with Robert Mugabe goes back to the time of the National Liberation War in the 1970s. He's always been in the tight inner circle of ZANU-PF leaders. Um, he's held numerous senior government positions, Minister of Defense, Minister of State Security, Minister of Finance, and he ended up by 2017 as the vice president uh, of, of the country. Um, he has helped to pull the iron out of the fire for Mugabe on several um, occasions. Uh, he was, after all, Minister of State Security during the so-called Gukuru Hundi massacres in the southwest of the country in the early 1980s. And he was also the architect of Mugabe's violent comeback in the second round of the 2008 elections. These were the elections that Trangarai won um, on the first round, but through a reign of terror uh, before the second round, um, Mugabe was enabled to uh, to be uh, re-elected. So uh, we should look at this guy as, I mean, he's almost like a Kagame figure. He's a military guy, really. He is a, is a man of the gun. He certainly has a very close relationship with um, the military elite. And in fact, he owes his present position as president of Zimbabwe to a military coup that took place in the middle of November last year. Um, so if you want to characterize this regime, I think you'd have to describe it as a military-civilian coalition. Uh, after all, he's promoted into the cabinet uh, former, uh, the former uh, uh, commander of the Zimbabwe Defense Forces, Constantine Chiwenga. He's made him vice president, and he's brought in other military men. I think the, it 
still an open question whether this is an even harder regime than the um, more openly civilian regime of Robert Mugabe. Um, Richard, what do you see happening in the coming elections later this year? Is this a chance where the where the U.S., where the, you were talking about engagement before, this is where we get an opportunity to engage in some respect. Um, yes, um, absolutely the case. Um, I'm very familiar, for example, under our previous president who, who cared about Africa, Obama, um, and uh, Johnny Carson, Assistant Secretary of, the State, of State for Africa, invested just a lot of effort um, with Zimbabwe. He really thought that they could really get through to Mugabe, and it it did not occur, right? So at present, I think, you know, it's going to be, um, obviously, um, there are other, um, you know, forces involved, European Union, um, you know, the National Democratic Institute. I mean, a lot of organizations involved in election monitoring. The Carter Center that I've been, I was involved in, I think there's an obvious role here for the Carter Center to play to get involved in. But it's going to be, it's going to be very tricky because... Um, Manangawa is going to do just enough to be able to win some kind of credibility, even some kind of a legitimacy from it, um, but not, um, you know, open up sufficiently so that he puts his power at risk. How he's going to manage that given his past, I think there's going to be a need for, I mean, I've been involved in these exercises with President Carter especially. Um, it's going to take a lot of, of diplomatic efforts to be able to work around all of this, bringing in the civil society groups and so on. So um, it's, it's really going to be, a, you know, a step-by-step process. But I, the word engagement is, is very important. Really just stay engaged, being present with this guy. Uh, what do you think, Michael Bratton, about the elections? Because their opposition is pretty shattered in Zimbabwe. I can't imagine they can get it together and run something uh, coherent by the end of the year. Yeah. Um, according to the Constitution, uh, elections have to be held every five years and in this case, no later than the 22nd of August 2018. Munangagwa has said he's ready to hold free and fair elections and to invite in EU and Commonwealth and uh, UN uh, observers. And I think he does so because he feels confident that he can win at least the, the presidency. The very untimely death of Morgan Schwangerei last week uh, makes that outcome ever ever more likely. Schwangerei was the hero of the democratic movement uh, in, in Zimbabwe, an extremely courageous man to stand up to the tyranny of, of Robert Mugabe. Um, and there couldn't have been a worse moment, in fact, for, for him to die. Um, as a result, the opposition is in serious uh, disarray. The only prospect of defeating uh, ZANU-PF in the upcoming election is if they unite. However, I think the writing is already on the wall that a more likely outcome uh, is that the death of Trangarai will be followed by further division uh, within the uh, within the opposition? Well, it, you know, after Manangagwa wins this thing, uh, it seems like the U.S. will face a choice, and our president in the United States does not seem to really mind undemocratic leadership. 
Uh, and this one seems to be a little better. Uh, he'll start throwing. Who gets to throw off the sanctions here? And and who? And I mean, it seems like Britain is in a place where they wouldn't mind uh, throwing off some sanctions either. They they're uh, Brexit oriented. They need uh, different kinds of friends these days. Uh, there's a whole. It, it, Zimbabwe's in a good position here. Well, you're you're exactly right. Um, I mean, Britain has the closest um, uh, historical ties to Zimbabwe and the greatest interests in Zimbabwe, much more so than the United States. Britain was always held a hard line against Mugabe, never being willing to work with him. And they see the new leader as providing an opening and a chance to to re-engage. So Britain has gone from being holding a hard line on Zimbabwe to holding perhaps among the softest lines among uh, those in the international community. Um, I think to the credit of the United States government, they've remained more consistent in in Zimbabwe and perhaps they can afford to because the U.S. has fewer direct uh, economic and strategic interests um, in that part of the world. Uh, Just in the last week, um, the State Department has reiterated that they regard the events of November 17th last year as a military coup. And they use that as a justification for saying that the sanctions on leading elements in the um, uh, uh, Munangagwa administration must remain until certain conditions in terms of uh, free and fair elections are actually met. So uh, oddly enough, there's been something of a role reversal in terms of Britain's position in particular with the U.S. remaining consistently more skeptical. Yeah, I like to let me just come in because I do want to come in with um, you know an issue here. When you mentioned about um, Kagame in Rwanda, uh, it really the fact that um, this very authoritarian regime, which had you know elections in which you know you got the usual results, um, is being held up now to as the model. This authoritarian model. Maybe we don't have to go this full democratic. Ethiopia used to be linked together with that, but of course Ethiopia is now facing these upheavals, and even the prime minister stepped around, right? So it's a real problem, um, you know, that we have that there is so much of a, both a global sense of, you know, let's just have security, and another sense in terms of, you know, the U.S. government, the recent U.S. government, you know, Donald Trump has come in and definitely has shown no interest in the democracy and the human rights, and now has been dismissive, okay? So in that context, how do you really advance a, an agenda having to do with democracy and human rights and inclusivity? And this is why, again, getting back to my engage, we need a lot of actors engaged because we have governments and some international organizations that are just missing in action. I wonder what uh, young people are thinking right now in these countries. Uh, in Zimbabwe, I imagine there are a lot of young people who would see this as an opportunity for uh, something different. Uh, Today is, ironically, Robert Mugabe's birthday, and uh, according to President Manangagwa, he said that the Youth League of the ZANU-PF petitioned him and wanted to make this a national holiday, so they did it, and it's, you know, Robert Mugabe Youth Day in uh, Zimbabwe today, and um, do they want... Uh, more of the same, or, do, or is there, uh, you know, some way they can focus the mind of the opposition? Well, there are certain, certainly elements within the the youth uh, um, who can be mobilized to make these kinds of demands. 
Um, there are renter mobs uh, rent, uh, that can be used for many political purposes. Um, so I think we need to interrogate whether this is representative of what all youths look for. Certainly the basis of the democratic movement in Zimbabwe was among young urban youth. So there are, there are those who would uh, not feel it was appropriate to declare this as, as Robert Mugabe Day. In fact, they probably would have insisted that President Munangagwa attend the funeral of, of Morgan Schwangerei yesterday, which uh, he patently refused to do. And they may have gone beyond that to say that Chwangarai should have been buried not so much in his home village, but at Hero's Acre, which is the shrine uh, for the uh, political leaders of the country. And yet Munangagwa failed to step up and to recognize um, the importance of Chwangarai's contribution to the political development of the country. As far as the youth support in the upcoming election is concerned, it's going to be very interesting to watch. Because the new president has this mantra of jobs, jobs, jobs. And quite understandably, there are young people to whom that sounds appealing, especially in the context of 80 to 90 percent formal unemployment. Most Zimbabweans now depend either on remissions from abroad or from trading uh, in the, as vendors in the informal sector. So there's a struggle going on for uh, the youth vote. And there's a big youth bulge in Zimbabwe, as there is in many, many African countries. Uh, we run public opinion surveys in Zimbabwe, and this is one of the things we're going to be trying to figure out exactly where the youth are going to find their political home. Michael Bratton is with Michigan State University. He's the author of Power Politics in Zimbabwe. Richard Joseph is professor of political science at Northwestern University. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about Zimbabwe with Richard Joseph, professor of political science and African studies at Northwestern University, and Michael Bratton. He's at Michigan State University and is the author of Power Politics in Zimbabwe. I wanted to talk a little about Robert Mugabe, who um, was a liberation icon in southern Africa and not just Zimbabwe, and he turned into this tyrant. Um, there are things you can read about him as a liberation figure that make you think, well, he was a violent guy. He wasn't a justice guy. And there are things you can read about him as a liberation figure that make you think, well, he was a legitimate uh, person aspiring to the rights of his people. Um, how do you read this guy? Did he change over time? Was he the same guy uh, he was in the 70s or something? Um, 
I, I do think he was – there's a consistent line in his, his career. But I think when he first came into power and he hadn't consolidated his own position, he realized that he had to uh, take a moderate position and to reach out, for example, to the white settler community um, uh, in, in Zimbabwe. Over time, however, once his party's ANU-PF gained the levers of, of of power, he was able to move against his rivals, not only among the whites, but um, among um, other African politicians. Um, there's a mindset in uh, the minds of the uh, leaders of ZANU-PF, and that is, as guerrilla fighters, because they died for the country, they had a certain political entitlement, an entitlement to rule forever and an entitlement to seize wealth wherever they saw fit. So over time, um, when faced with an existential threat from a democratic movement led by Morgan Schwangerei, um, the harsher elements of Mugabe's personality came out. And from 2000 onwards, he basically relied on the military to keep him in power, and in particular to um, uh, reinstall him after he lost an election to Changarai in 2008. So yes, I think those tendencies were always there. They were kept in check in the early days of his rule, but they came out when he, he felt threatened that he was about to lose, uh, lose his power. Uh, Richard, the word entitlement uh, seems to apply in South Africa as well, with uh, Jacob Zuma recently being pushed out by the African National Congress. Uh, it, it's, uh, he was a, a, a liberation leader for South Africa, and uh, he, you know, there's a lot of people who want him convicted on corruption proceedings. Uh, it, is this a general theme? Yes, and, and we're seeing an, an unfortunate compound that has emerged. On the one hand, we have these kleptocracies. I've been on to talk about prebendalism, the corruption, and so on, and we, in many countries. In the countries where you have um, liberation movements, when you add to that a sense of entitlement, we want this. This is our state. This is our country. Right? And in Ethiopia, you had that very strong feeling, and that's why Ethiopia went in that direction. Even in, in Uganda with Museveni, uh, you, you have that, that sense. All right? So when you put those two things together, and in South Africa, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's really um, a country that is really – we didn't – those of us who were involved in, with the anti-apartheid movement, the question was that South Africa did not go in, need to go in this other direction as many other – they have. Right? And now couple that with that very tight sense of entitlement and the enrichment that has taken place. It's, you know, that you are really having to fight those two battles at the same time, the autocracy, the state capture, but also the, the kleptocratic behaviors. And someone like Mugabe, he thought of himself as the state. He, he really personified the will of the government and the people. Yes, this is true. And he had a broad appeal, as you said earlier, beyond the boundaries of Zimbabwe, as someone who had decolonized the country, not only politically, but by seizing white farmland, had decolonized it economically. And that's why Mugabe had, had an appeal among certain sections in South Africa as well. But I, I just want to talk a little bit more about the conjunction between leadership change in both Zimbabwe and South Africa around the same time, an unusual conjunction. Um, 
it would appear, um, for example, that in South Africa, the replacement of uh, Jacob Zuma with um, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa um, is a sign that there is at least some accountability in the South African political system. They managed to get rid of an openly corrupt leader and to bring in someone who's promising an anti-corruption drive. And in that sense, it would seem as though this is an asset for South Africa's democracy. But I would have much preferred to see a leadership change take place according to the Constitution and involving institutions like the legislature and the judiciary. But instead, the transition of power has taken place within the party, the party that came out of the liberation movement. And this is very much what happened in Zimbabwe. Absolutely. That it, it was not a democratic change of government via election. Instead, it was the result of a faction fight within the party in which Mugabe and his wife lost and um, another group from the same uh, liberation movement background displaced them without a change of party, without a change of regime. And in fact, I would argue with possibly a hardening of the regime by the elevation of military elements to front and center. In both of these instances, we had circumstances where Zuma was trying to pass on his leadership to his ex-wife and uh, exactly. and we had uh, in Zimbabwe the practically you know he was trying to pre- pass things on to Grace his wife so that then in both these instances the party stood up and said well no thanks yes uh, but it but it walks right up to the uh, <laughs> to the line of uh, yes you know uh, fa- family empire kind of thing yes well I, I think the the uh, specter of a dynastic Succession was just a step too far for the rival uh, Mugabe's rival faction within within the party. Grace, after all, had really no credentials to be a future president of Zimbabwe. She had been, she, as Mugabe's second wife, she had been plucked from the secretarial pool in the office of the president. Uh, she had been elevated to the leadership of the women's wing in the in, in the ruling party but had made evident her ambition to succeed her husband. And in fact, there were moves afoot at the party congress to hold a party congress in December 2017, which would have elevated her even further to the vice presidency of the party, putting her in line for the vice presidency of the country. This was the, this was the trigger, the tipping point that... Um, uh, brought the military out of their ballot, uh, barracks and the installation of Munangagwa as a way of preventing uh, the dynastic succession. Now, it seems like the uh, in both the well in the South African instance, the Mr. Zuma and his um, associates are going to be hounded on corruption charges. They are going to face um, all sorts of things that are going to transpire, but. And Zimbabwe, it looks like Robert Mugabe, you know, is getting a day named after him. The yes. the worst thing that's happening to a, to to Grace is that they're looking into her doctorate, and they're yeah. going to charge her for a, a false doctorate or something. It's, it's they're they're handling him with such kit gloves. Yes, and this this is part of the the figment that there was not really a military coup in Zimbabwe, but rather it was a civilian transition. They want to keep alive the idea that there was do- this was done constitutionally when clearly um, it, it wasn't. Um, you know, I 
believe that the Munangagwa regime uh, will continue to hold over Grace's head the fact that they know she has multi-millions invested abroad, and if she tries to become politically active again, she will be prosecuted on those grounds. We've already begun to see a crackdown on corruption in Zimbabwe, but I don't think we should celebrate it too much because it's not at all clear that it's motivated by the right intentions. It could well be a purge to get rid of the rival opponents within the party by using the excuse of corruption as a way of getting rid of them. I'm talking with Michael Branton, the author of Power Politics in Zimbabwe, and Richard Joseph from Northwestern University. We're talking about Zimbabwe and accountability and African leadership. I wanted to ask a question about China and the role that China plays here. Um, Can China change the dynamic on any of these issues? They seem to have such a big footprint in a place like uh, Zimbabwe and uh, Ethiopia. They're uh, monsters. what do they want? Do they want something? Do they want a, a kleptocrat? Do they want some some clean government? Yeah, let me come in here and I'll link the China issue with the issues we're, we're talking about here. Um, obviously, the China government um, is not a, a stalwart uh, defender or promoter um, of democratic systems. They work with whoever is there, right? Um, but they have become so deeply entrenched in Africa that, in fact, their interests they have an interest now in making sure that, you know, at least, you know, places do not fall apart, right? But I just, before we, you know, we, we, uh, there are a couple of very important issues that came up that I don't want us to, to, to lose, lose sight of here. And it is the, I mean, when you mention about the, the, the dynasties, I mean, understand, you know, the person in power in, in, in Togo is named Yadima, and so was a person 30 years ago, father, Bongo in Gabon, so was his father, right? And so what is happening, and we take this term power politics from Michael Bratton's work and talking, we're now having some meetings on power politics in electoral democracy. The power politics we have in Africa now is power politics in which, um, you know, whether it's, it's Kenyatta, with a lot of land holding going back to his father. There is Kabila, a lot of land holding, Museveni, on and on and on. So we have regimes that really are becoming owners of so much of the wealth of these countries. And how are you going to have electoral democracy with the hope of holding them accountable? Um, you, know, you know, this is why the, 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 the challenges that we faced in these countries. And then the last thing about, about the South Africa situation, to its credit, you know, South Africa with its, its constitutional court, with the judicial system, you have some accountability there that is still very viable. And you also have elections that function. In that regard, I can't say the same for, quite frankly, any of the countries we've talked about today. Very interesting. Um, Michael, do you want to weigh in on uh, China? Well, I can weigh in on China and Zimbabwe. Mm. The fact is there's been a very close relationship between ZANU-PF, the ruling party, and the Chinese Communist Party uh, since the 1970s during the Liberation War. Um, When ZANU looked around for uh, a support for its um, guerrilla resistance against the settlers in Zimbabwe. They were turned down by the West, so they looked east. Um, ZAPU went to Russia and ZANU went to China, and there's been a close relationship um, ever since. Um, We know that the current 
Chinese government provides arms to the Zimbabwe government. We know that they have financed the um, Army Staff College in which they promulgate their uh, military doctrine of a People's Liberation Army, which very much helps us to understand the way the military folks understand their role in, in, in Zimbabwe. Um, and I do believe that they see the transition here as an opportunity uh, for them to uh, maintain their access to the uh, uh, mineral wealth and other uh, bounty that, uh, that uh, Zimbabwe um, enjoys. I think they probably welcomed the change from Mugabe to uh, Munangagwa because under Mugabe, uh, the Zimbabweans were becoming indebted to China the way they are now indebted to the World Bank and the IMF. And uh, the Chinese, who are good businessmen, uh, would rather have partners who can pay back, back their loans. Michael Bratton is a distinguished professor of political science and African studies at Michigan State University. He's the author of Power Politics in Zimbabwe. Richard Joseph is professor of political science and African studies at Northwestern University. It's great to see you. Thanks for joining us and talking about Zimbabwe and Africa. Thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, we'll have music for social change. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. And today we're going to hear about a terrific program that the North Shore Choral Society is doing on Sunday. It's Music for Social Change, Africa, America, and the Singing Revolution of Estonia. With me is Julia Davids, the music director of the North Shore Choral Society, and she also directs choral activities at North Park University. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell us something about, for people who don't know anything about the North Shore Choral Society, um, what are you guys? Yeah, the North Shore Choral Society is uh, made up of amateur singers. There are about 130 uh, singers in the group, and I think this is our 83rd season. So the choir has been going for a very long time. The singers live all over the North Shore and into Chicago. Now, you do some pretty aggressive programming, and <laughs> i got to say, in Music for Social Change, you've got some you've got some attitude towards your stuff. Yeah. Well, I think um, we've really been thinking a lot about what it means to be an arts organization in the world. So um, not a choral society that keeps to itself and just sings for the enjoyment of its members and sings the music of um, 
old dead people, <laughs> but sings a wide variety of repertoire and especially uh, is outward looking. And we think a lot about how to connect with our community. I saw you did a program on environmental music and then went out and cut buckthorn. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> we did the Mississauga. <laughs> That's very true, yeah. And um, of course, we did uh, Requiem for Peace a few years ago. And that yeah, each season we try and, and think of some ways to really connect with the community. And this time it's uh, Music for Social Change Africa, America, and the Singing Revolution of Estonia. And we've got. Um, music from America first. Right, yeah. So I think you can uh, think about music for social change in a lot of ways, but um, we've really been considering um, what does it mean to be an artist and try and bring about change. Um, so uh, civil rights movement in America is one of those places where music has played a role and continues to play a role. So we've got a cut of your North Shore Choral Society doing We Shall Overcome. That's the North Shore Choral Society singing We Shall Overcome. Their Music for Social Change concert is Sunday at Regina Dominican High School in Wilmette. With me is Julia Davids, the music director of the North Shore Choral Society. Um, So you've got several pieces that are songs uh, of protest and freedom from America. Mm -hmm. And then you move on and you go to uh, South Africa, too. Yeah, well, for a long time, I've really wanted to collaborate with Molly Stone. Um, She's worked with our groups at North Park University and has spent a lot of time in South Africa. And it's a completely different um, style of learning music and singing music. It involves physical movement, and it's something that the North Shore Choral Society hasn't done much of. So wanted to work with her. Molly Stone's with us. She directs, uh, she's the co-founder of World Music Chorus, Chicago World Music Chorus, and uh, also is the University Chorus and Women's Ensemble uh, Director at the University of Chicago. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How did you fall in love with African choral music? When I was growing up, my mother used to play me recordings of Miriam Makeba singing, and so I knew about South African music from a young age. But I wasn't introduced to the world of um, South African choral music until I was a little bit older, and I joined the Chicago Children's Choir. And even when I was eight and nine years old, we started learning the music of the anti-apartheid struggle. And I was lucky to grow up in that era because then I got to sing the same songs after the fall of apartheid. And I started to learn about how those same songs were being used in reconciliation to create the new rainbow nation of South Africa. And then when I was in high school, I got to go on tour with Chicago Children's Choir for five weeks to South Africa, and that changed my life forever. How do you learn to do 
choral music differently like that because, like Julia said, it's so different. It seems like a different um, form of music altogether. It's a really important question. The first thing you have to do is be willing to just allow yourself to try to imitate the sound, the movement, everything, um, and just allow yourself to go there and let go of your inhibitions. But I think first and foremost, you have to approach the music with a sense of respect and love. Your first priority has to be to show the people whose music you're learning that you are performing that music to create a bond with them and to try to understand them and to show respect for them. How do you get people to sing in a different language like that? <laughs> oh, it's so much fun. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> yeah. A lot of the times you actually tell background stories about the language or you even distract them from how hard it is by talking about little things in the grammar or drawing connections between words. Sometimes I tell them what my favorite word is in Zulu and, and then I demonstrate it. And before they know it, they're laughing and trying it out and they're, they're not shy anymore to try it. Tell us a favorite word in Zulu. Oh, well, Actually, I'll tell you my favorite word in um, Kosa, which is probably the same, but it's the word for motorcycle, which is isi tu tu tu. It's kind of phonetic or uh, something. Very right? much so. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, tell us about the songs you're doing here. So um, I chose um, a song first from the anti-apartheid struggle. And uh, there's a few reasons why I chose this, Asimbonanga, which is actually by Johnny Clegg originally. But the version that I am, Johnny Clegg, who, who is known as the White Zulu. And Johnny Clegg um, is somebody that really, truly respected and spent his entire life studying and being in love with the music of Zulu migrant laborers. And um, I think in some ways he's a good model of what it can look like for a white person to try to show respect for another culture, another tradition, especially one um, from people who are oppressed. And he fought hard and defied uh, many of the laws in apartheid and insisted on collaborating with black musicians when it was not actually permitted. Um, but the version we're doing is by the Soweto Gospel Choir, and this is the 100th anniversary of Mandela's death, I mean this year. So we're, um, uh, the Soweto Gospel Choir performed this, their arrangement of Asimbonanga um, right after his death five years ago in a really beautiful flash mob in a grocery store, actually. Cool. And it's, a, it's such a stunningly beautiful piece, and it talks about um, a lot of different issues that are relevant today. It talks about what it's like to have somebody in your life incarcerated. It talks about um, not being able to be in contact with your leader um, and finding the strength within yourself to propel a movement, even when your leaders are in exile or imprisoned or dead. Um, and so... There's a lot of reasons why this song is really powerful uh, for us to do today. And then the second song is from this more recent movement where people have adapted the songs from the anti-apartheid struggle to use in the struggle against HIV. And it's a new composition by a man named Bongani Magatiana from Cape Town. Um, and it, it takes lyrics from a famous old anti-apartheid song and even part of an anti-apartheid song and fuses it together with music that talks about the, the current day struggle against HIV AIDS. Um, we have a cut of Asim Bonanga, which we were talking about before. I, I don't know if this is a Johnny Clegg version or not. This is the Johnny Clegg version, and we'll listen to a little bit of that. Asim 
Asim Bonanga, and that's the Johnny Clegg version. And with me is uh, Molly Stone. She is working with the Chicago World Music Chorus, and they were working with the North Shore Choral Society on that song. And it'll be without the kind of 80s uh, beautiful music effects there huh? <laughs> when you guys do it in, in your version. Um, so you're, And I kind of jumped in there, and you've got one more song you're doing with the uh, North Shore Choral Society? Well, we're doing um, a, another song that's actually um, a, a current song, if you will, that's not from South Africa called Lead with Love by Melanie Damore. And that's going to be something that we teach the audience, and it um, was written the day after the election. Um, and Melanie Damore posted a YouTube video called um, – it's called Lead with Love or You Gotta Put One Foot in Front of the Other. And it talks about how no matter how you're feeling in reaction to current day events, that you have to come together, not necessarily agree with each other, but that you have to get up and do something uh, and that leading with love is the best way to do it. So if you're going to um, do protest, work for change in any way, you gotta, you gotta get up and do it. We're talking about the Music for Social Change event that's happening on Sunday in uh, Wilmette, and the North Shore Choral Society is going to celebrate the music of Africa and America and the singing revolution of Estonia. Julia Davids, uh, people might have heard of the singing revolution of Estonia, but some people might not have. Uh, What was going on there? Right. Well, um, Molly can probably speak to this as well, but uh, there's a fantastic documentary film called The Singing Revolution. And that's how I was sort of introduced um, to this. And I am a little embarrassed to admit that I didn't know about um, the events that happened in Estonia and in the Baltics. So it was essentially um, singing and coming together in their traditional cultural songs in Estonia that led to um, freedom from Soviet occupation, and that was in the early 1990s. They were able to come together at the singing grounds in Estonia? The singing festival, the, the singing La Lutidu festival. festival, yes. And did they were they seemed to have a little more latitude to say what they wanted in song. Well, yes, definitely there were censors that um, censored out some, um, a, a lot of repertoire, but some of the pieces, of course, their traditional folk pieces, they were allowed to sing in their own language. And then little by little, pieces were being composed, and they got by the censors. Uh, And one of those pieces that we're going to um, sing on Sunday is one of those. Um, We've got a cut uh, of uh, Estonian music here, and we're going to hear it directly from one of the Estonian song celebrations in 2009. And this is a, this isn't a professional choir, really. It's like the whole crowd, because they sing like... Tens of thousands strong. 15,000 to 20,000 people, amateur singers that come together for this festival. Here is the Estonia Song Celebration.
Wow, that's a powerful singing there from the Estonian uh, musical celebration and uh, song celebration. And we're going to find out a lot more about uh, the singing revolution of Estonia on Sunday with Music for Social Change, Africa, America, and the Singing Revolution of Estonia. And it'll be at the Regina Dominican High School on Locust Road in in, uh, Wilmette. And uh, it's the North Shore Choral Society. People can go to the website and find out more information. Yes, absolutely. And tickets available at the door. And also Molly's other ensemble, um, the Chicago Children's Choir, Hyde Park Presto Ensemble, will also be performing on the concert. That's terrific. And uh, you're doing a community workshop on Saturday, Molly. That's great. And people can check out the information at the uh, website of the North Shore Choral Society. Julia Davids, music director of the North Shore Choral Society. Great to see you. And Molly Stone, thanks a lot for joining us from Chicago World Music Chorus. This Thank is terrific. You. Thanks so much. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll, join, we'll be joined by Frank Schaefer, and we'll talk about Billy Graham around the world. Hope you can join us tomorrow on Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.